This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Monk. We have a bone to pick with the monk. As gamers, we here at the Word of the Week are willing to suspend our disbelief and make allowances for a certain amount of anachronism in our games. But everyone has their limits, and one of the things in our favorite Western fantasy games that has always rubbed us the wrong way is the archetype of the monk. It's not just that they are out of place geographically, that's fine. We accept things like Arabian genies and Romanian vampires in our Western European medieval fantasy. The problem is, they come from a completely different genre, and they are the result of some pretty unique cultural developments that have no analog in Western fantasy. But perhaps worst of all, the problem is that we might have had something even cooler if we didn't end up with a monk. Now, when we say monk, we're talking about monks in the fantasy adventure game sense. That is, in the Dungeons and Dragons sense. You're not going to find any fat, cheerful Christians here in plain brown robes and tonsures. You know, the, the haircut where you shave the top of your head, but you leave a ring of hair around the sides and back. You will not find any Benedictines or Franciscans. Nope. We're talking about monks as they might be played by Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan or David Carradine. Eastern monks. Martial artists. Now, if you're like most people, when you hear martial arts, you think specifically of Asia and of agile men and women in pajamas fighting with their bare hands and bare feet or sometimes with nunchucks or ninja swords or whatever. Yes, we said nunchucks because when we went to school in the 80s and early 90s, everyone was into nunchucks. And that's what we called them. And that's what actually drives us so crazy about the monk in Dungeons and Dragons. It's this weird, Eastern-themed thing crammed ham-fistedly into our Western medieval fantasy. And that just bugs us. But we digress. Point is, when you hear martial arts, you think wushu. In Chinese, wu means having to do with fighting or warfare, and shu means skill or discipline. Or if you prefer... Wu means martial, and shu means art. Funny how that works out. And the reason you think that in Chinese is because we pretty much associate the birth of Eastern martial arts with China. And that's fair enough, because according to legend, China invented martial arts. At least, what we think of when we hear martial arts. Wushu. And let's call them Wushu to avoid confusion later. Trust us. So, Wushu. Legend says that the first Wushu techniques were invented more than four millennia ago in China, before the Jia Dynasty. You remember that one, right? We've talked about it before. It was established by Yu the Great to succeed the five mythical emperors that were also sort of demigods and the three actual god beings that ruled the universe. And for a long time, historians thought the Jia Dynasty was just a fun story. 
And then archaeologists turned up some artifacts that suggested that some of it maybe had some basis in fact. Not the God Emperor thing, just the Jia Dynasty part. Well, according to the legend, it was one of those demigod emperors, Huang Di, who invented Wushu. He was a famous general, see, and he was a bit of a renaissance demigod. He wrote all sorts of stuff about medicine and astrology, and he invented tea. And he also wrote a lot about warfare and combat. And he developed a number of combat techniques, including an unarmed wrestling style called Jiao Di. Now, whether you believe that whole story about demigod emperors who invented tea and inherited the universe from gods, the fact is that we do have some solid records from around the 5th century BCE about a hand-to-hand combat style, which included things like unarmed strikes, throws, grapples, pins, locks, and pressure point attacks. But what's interesting is that by the time of the annals of spring and fall were being written in the 5th century BCE and talking about wushu techniques like those above, there had already been a significant amount of trade between India and China. See, starting in about 600 BCE, there were these networks of trade routes and roads that would eventually become the Silk Road. Now, you've probably heard of the Silk Road. It was a pretty significant connection between China and Rome and Europe that officially became a thing in 130 BCE when the Han Dynasty opened trade with China. And it officially stopped being a thing in 1453 when the Ottoman Empire conquered the entire Middle East and points beyond and closed down all trade everywhere. Which is why Europe had to start sailing ships across the ocean to look for new trade routes. Except a lot of that is incorrect. First, the Silk Road is not a single road. It was a whole network of paved roads, caravan tracks, and known routes. Which is why some historians have taken to calling it the Silk Routes instead of the Silk Road. And the reason, by the way, it's called the Silk Road is because one of the primary goods that moved from China to Rome and Europe was silk. But also tea, dyes, porcelain, spices, bronze artifacts, perfume, ivory, rice, paper, gunpowder. And in return, China got horses, grapes, wine, dogs, animal furs, fruits, wool, textiles, gold and silver, camels, weapons and armor, and slaves. Second, the Silk Road didn't just connect China and Rome. It connected all sorts of things. China, India, the Persian Empire, the Middle East, Asia Minor, and of course, Greece and Rome and Europe. Because it was a network. And third, it wasn't officially opened in 130 BCE. That's just when the Han Dynasty reopened trade with the rest of the world after a period of isolationism in ancient China. The various roads and routes that made up the Silk Road had existed for centuries before then. The longest leg was actually a highway across Persia known as the Persian Royal Road, which was built under the rule of the Achaemenid Empire before 500 BCE. Now, what does any of that have to do with the origin of Wushu in China? Well, it turns out that in India, before 600 BCE, They had developed all sorts of different fighting techniques, and there was extensive trade between India and China. And then suddenly, in 500 BCE, the Chinese are bragging about their amazing fighting techniques. 
What a weird coincidence. Especially because it was really during the period from 480 BCE to 221 BCE when everyone was fighting everyone in China during the period known as the period of the Warring States when Wushu techniques really started to flourish. And that's when Sung Tzu got around to writing about it. Now, even if you don't want to credit India as the real inventor of Wushu techniques, and for reasons we'll get to at the end of the episode you shouldn't, the fact is that it was the extensive trade network across the region that allowed Wushu to spread and flourish. More importantly though, if not for India, well, you wouldn't have the image of the wandering Wushu monk that you do. In 1972, a television series aired on American television that told the story of an orphaned man named Kwai Chang Kane, whose father was American and whose mother was Chinese, who was trained in the Chinese art of Kung Fu by an elderly teacher named Master Po. After Po was murdered by the Prince of China, and Kane retaliated by killing the prince, he had to flee China and make his way across the American frontier west while also having extensive flashbacks of Master Poe training him and calling him Grasshopper all the time. Because he couldn't hear the sound of a grasshopper at his feet during a training session once or something, it's been a long time since we watched the show. But it was this show, starring David Carradine as Kwai Chang Kane, the wandering kung fu monk. And the show was called Kung Fu. It was this show that basically set the stage for the popularity of the martial arts movie in America. And it also depicted a very particular and surprisingly grounded in history image of the wandering martial artist monk. It depicted a Shaolin monk. Now, the Shaolin Monastery is pretty much the most famous temple in China. In real life, the show didn't make it up. And the Shaolin monks are famous for their kung fu training, their strength, their agility, their endurance, their resistance to pain, and their devotion to what might be the world's most peaceful religion, Buddhism. Uh, specifically, Zen Buddhism. Buddhism is about achieving peace and contentment through an understanding of the true nature of the universe. Basically, there was this prince in Nepal named Siddhartha Gautama. He lived from about 560 BCE to 460 BCE, and though he was born to wealth and affluence, he renounced it all and adopted an ascetic lifestyle after he realized that all the material and carnal pleasures of his life weren't really making him truly happy. Like, deeply spiritually happy. In fact, the pursuit of those things was actually the source of most of the unhappiness in the world. Basically, he came up with four universal truths. Life is basically painful, but all of that pain comes from desire and attachment, so if you can eliminate desire, you can eliminate pain, and the way to eliminate desire is to adopt a noble mindset and noble path. Anyway, that's Buddhism in a nutshell. Everything else in Buddhism is about achieving the state of passionless contentment and how to do it right. Now, fast forward to 480 CE and a Buddhist teacher named Buddha Barda, also known as 
Batuo in Chinese. He had some particular ideas about how to Buddhist correctly, how to achieve the state of passionless contentment. One of his ideas was that the best way to learn how to Buddhist was from a teacher. Now that might seem obvious, but Buddhism had mostly been focused on studying the written teachings of previous masters, including the first Buddha himself. The second idea he had was that Buddhism was all internal. Although Buddhism is about understanding the true nature of the universe because you, yourself, are part of that universe, you have the nature of the universe in yourself. You just have to get there. If you can sync up your mind and your body and get your mind to stop thinking too much, you can also sync up your mind in the universe. Easy, right? So Buddha Barda goes to China in 496 CE and he talks to the ruler of the Northern Wei clan, Emperor Shawen. Now, despite the fact that a lot of his court are really into Confucian philosophy, Shawen is a devout Buddhist. And so he gives Buddha Barda a little grove of trees, which in Chinese is called a lin, atop Mount Shaoshi. The Shao Lin. See? And Buddha Barda established a monastery there to teach his brand of Buddhism known as Chan Buddhism in China or Zen Buddhism in Japan. And as part of the whole sync up mind and body thing, they perfected a wushu technique that eventually became known as Kung Fu. Now, over the course of the 1500 years since the founding of the Shaolin Temple, there have been a lot of politics and a lot of war. And the monks of Shaolin have gotten wrapped up in it pretty heavily at times. The temple was raised several times when non-Buddhists took power in China and then rebuilt under the rule of Buddhists. When the Tang Dynasty rose up against the warlord Wang Shichong in 618, the Shaolin monks joined the fight. But a later Tang emperor feared a Buddhist uprising in 841 and burned all the Buddhist temples. The fate of the Shaolin was unknown for a long time. During the Mongol invasion, the Shaolin monks fought heartily, and then when the region collapsed into lawlessness and was overrun with bandit armies in the 1550s, they fought again. They became famous for staff fighting during this period and for empty hand fighting as well. The monastery was abandoned for many years. It was sacked several times. It was inhabited by squatters and pretenders. The monks were accused of siding with the boxers during the famous rebellion of 1900. The temple fell into disrepute in 1912 when the imperial dynasty collapsed and it was burned down in 1928. And during the communist government's cultural revolution of 1966, the temple was burned again and the monks were publicly flogged and flailed many of the temple's treasures were destroyed. And that might have been the end of the Shaolin Temple. But then, in America and the West, something happened. First, there was the TV show called Kung Fu. And then some movies got made. And ultimately, in 1982, a film called Shaolin Shi, the Shaolin Temple, reached the West. And it introduced martial artist and actor Li Lianji, a.k.a. Jet Li, to the West. And as a result of the rising popularity of martial arts movies in the 1980s and 1990s, 
the Shaolin Temple became a tourist destination. By the mid-90s, more than one million people visited the temple each year, and the monks of Shaolin have capitalized on it by touring the world and giving martial arts demonstrations and consulting on films, of which there have now been hundreds. But, truth be told, Wushu, Eastern Martial Arts, didn't really catch on across the world until the modern era. And honestly, Wushu techniques weren't as hugely influential in China as we might believe. Wushu actually gained a substantial foothold in popularity thanks to a particular island in Japan, where the most popular Eastern martial art in the world was born thanks to an oppressive government policy of no weapons allowed. The Okinawan Islands, or chain of islands, of which Okinawa is the largest, stuck between mainland Asia and Japan. And ages ago, like 50,000 years ago or something, it was actually connected to both via a land bridge. But when the sea levels rose, the people of Japan, Okinawa, and mainland Asia were all kind of isolated from each other. The point is, for a long time, until the 17th century specifically, Okinawa was doing its own thing. It wasn't Japan or China, it was its own kingdom. Well, it was three kingdoms for a while, Nanzan, Chuzan, and Hokuzan. In 1372, trade between the Okinawan kingdoms and China became a thing. And to cement that trade deal, the Chinese emperor sent a group of settlers, known as the 36 families, to establish a permanent settlement on Okinawa. They were artisans and merchants and professionals and brought various skills to Okinawa. Among them was Shaolin Kung Fu. The locals practiced the Kung Fu, but they also fused it with earlier techniques they'd learned under trade with the Tang Dynasty, which they called Todei, or just To. Now, interestingly, because of the unique nature of the Chinese kanji alphabet, the character for To can also be read as kara. Kanji is weird. So the technique was called kara day. So by 1429, you had two very well-developed wushu techniques coexisting in Okinawa. Kung fu and kara day. And that would just be a neat little historical factoid. But for the fact that in 1429... A general of the Shou dynasty violently united the three kingdoms of Okinawa under his rule. And then in 1477, the Shou dynasty begat the very paranoid Shoshin dynasty, which was terrified of a peasant uprising. And so the Shoshin rulers banned all citizens from owning weapons or training in combat. Now, as the parent of any teenager can tell you, the best way to make something popular is to ban it. Suddenly, Kung Fu and Kara Day became all the rage among the populace. Of course, the first rule of Kara Day Club was that you didn't talk about Kara Day Club. And so, for 150 years, these techniques were practiced and mastered in secret by various Okinawans. Which by itself was interesting enough. 
But then in 1609, the Japanese Satsuma clan invaded Okinawa with samurai and swords and armor. And the unarmed populace found their empty-handed fighting techniques were a bit lacking when pitted against the armed and armored. And so they started inventing a variety of weapons especially designed to counter swords and other weapons of the samurai. Things like the sai, the nunchaku, the bow, the tonfa, and the kama. Basically, most of the weapons used by certain mutated turtles and all of the weapons that monks in Dungeons and Dragons can use with their special monk powers. In 1875, things got a lot better for the Okinawans. They were freed from the oppression of the Satsuma clan and officially became part of Japan. And thus, their technique of Karadei and their specialized weapons were free to spread across Japan. However, in 1905, they changed the name from Karadei to Karate. Now, that was effectively the same word. And thanks to the way the Chinese and Japanese written languages work, it was effectively spelled the same. But they changed the meaning. See, originally, Tode, a.k.a. Karade, had been called Tode because it came from the Tang Dynasty of China. So it was basically Tang Chinese hand. But they rebranded to Kara to mean empty. So today, Karate means empty hand. Karate quickly spread through Japan and then into Hawaii. And with the American occupation of Japan and with military bases on Okinawa, karate spread into America. And in the 1960s, many karate instructors traveled from Okinawa to America to start schools, dojos, here. And with the explosion in popularity of martial arts films and movies in the 70s and 80s, they flourished. Which is why every kid was making nunchucks in the 80s. And none of that has anything to do with the monk in Dungeons and Dragons. Seriously, the first monk in Dungeons and Dragons was designed and played by Brian Bloom, one of the co-founders of TSR and one of Gary Gygax's first partners. And it was eventually included in the 1975 supplement Blackmore, based on a massive pile of scribbled notes that Dave Arneson had provided about his own home game. And it was not based on Shaolin monks or the Kung Fu television series or karate. It was based on a series of novels by Warren Murphy, Richard Sapir, and a bunch of ghostwriters whose first book, Created the Destroyer, was published in 1971. And it was a series about Remo Williams, a New Jersey cop who was framed for murder, sentenced to death, and secretly recruited by the government as a super spy and assassin. Remo Williams is a master of a completely made-up Korean martial art known as Sinanju, which is a mix of Zen, Karate, Aikido, and Judo. Later on, it also turns out that Remo Williams is actually an incarnation of the Hindu god Shiva and is actually the subject of a prophecy about one who will bring balance to Sinanju, or something like that. Seriously, that's where the Dungeons and Dragons monks came from. Now, we're not the only gamers who have complained about the monk, and so the monk has evolved officially and unofficially throughout the years. Gradually, various elements from the actual history of the Shaolin monks, Zen Buddhism, 
Okinawan karate, and other tidbits from Wushu history and pop culture have been layered on. Mainly because people thought the original monk was too weak to be viable, and a bit silly. But we, of course, dislike the fact that it's an intrusion of Eastern flavor in our Western medieval fantasy, as we've said. Which is a shame, because you don't need Wushu to have martial arts monks. And that's because the phrase martial arts doesn't mean karate and kung fu and ninjas and stuff. Which is why we were careful to call that stuff Wushu earlier. See? We had a point. In truth, the phrase martial art is derived from the name Mars, the Roman god of war. And it refers to any art, technique, or discipline based on practicing any form of combat at all. Technically, boxing, wrestling, and fencing, as in dueling, are all martial arts, and every culture on earth has developed a martial art or two or ten, even Christian monks. Let's leave you with the story of Fecht Book 133. And even though it is written as capital I dot three three, that's how it's pronounced, Fecht Book 133, in case you want to look it up. It's a German manuscript whose author is unknown, and it appears to date from 1300. And it's a martial arts manual written by Christian monks from a Franconian monastery in Central Europe, where Germany stands today, that instructs monks in a particular style of skirmish-type combat using a sword and buckler. The text describes the instructor as a priest, and the illustrations show fighters working the various exercises with their heads shaved in a tonsure. And if Brian Bloom had been reading medieval manuscripts instead of cheap spy novels, maybe we could play a totally theme and genre appropriate swashbuckler priest, a sort of Friar Tuck by way of Errol Flynn or Carrie Elwes, instead of James Bond by way of David Carradine and Jet Lee. And maybe that's what really bugs us. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.